This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to level up your leadership development, your sales team, and how our guest today went from zero to $100 million in ARR over three times. Today, we have our guest, Jay Ryan Williams, joining us. Jay Ryan Williams is a founder, media producer, and coach with an extensive startup operator and advisory advisory, uh, experience. He's achieved zero to $100 million three times, okay? He is a keynote speaker who devoted his career to leadership development, and as an executive coach, he works with high potential teams and leaders at once-in-a-generation technology companies such as Airbnb, Lyft, and many others, as well as many early-stage startups backed by Google, Y Combinator, A16Z, and other top investors. Prior to starting his coaching firm, Ryan created a sales training program called Sales Collider for new executives perfecting their go-to market strategies and provided workshops to 400 participants over two years. So welcome, Ryan. Uh, super excited to have you on SAS District Show today. Thank you so much, Akil. I appreciate it. Uh, so we like to always start off, get to know our guests. Please you know, let us know. Share us your background. What's your personal background? And quick history of your past ventures. Well, I'd say um, if we rolled it all the way back, I would have to admit that I avoided sales and business really aggressively for the first few years of my career. And what happened was, is I was a, a teacher and a project community in Chicago. And, uh, and we ran out of money for the program at the Boys and Girls Club. And that led to a career in fundraising for the cause uh, that I was so passionate about. And, um, and when I decided to you know, get more involved in tech, because I'd always loved technology. Uh, and so that was you know, my, my job at the Boys and Girls Club had to do with helping kids get online and use computers. This was probably you know, early 2000s, probably 2001, 2003. And uh, when we ran out of money for that, that beautiful computer lab that Microsoft had provided the computers for. It's like, shoot, man, I got to go raise raise money for these kids. And uh, I ended up in enterprise sales without knowing it. Uh, and so the further I got, you know, in this away from education and deeper into tech, the more it looked like the same job, but uh, enterprise sales. And so that's my basis is around like, you know, always thinking about how to 
you know, the user, you know, we say user experience in tech, but, you know, my past life is really about the experience of a student, you know? So, so that's the way I show up as a leader. That's the way I show up as an executive is always thinking about how can I teach and develop and help the people around me. And sure enough, you know, with that posture, when I finally got into startups, I got to see a chance to, you know, see things really take off. And so, um, so that that's how it all happened for me. And so the, the more interesting part, I think, for your audience is joining uh, a web development agency in San Jose, probably 2008 or so. And got, got a, you know, I got a chance there to see kind of cutting edge little ideas that founders had that they needed to build a external facing you know, website for. And so I'd sold a bunch of deals. It was actually a horrible job. Uh, if we want a sidebar, um, the management structure was tough, uh, but I loved what I was selling. And so um, the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back though, and I was like, I'm leaving for a real startup is one day at lunch, I was with my colleague Don and I was complaining about, you know, coming so close to my, my quota, not hitting it. And I was complaining to him and I was like, how are you doing? Because I'm, I feel like I'm getting beat up every month. And I realized that the quotas had been set differently for different people. And so I had the highest quote on the team <laughs> and I didn't know it. Uh, and I was like, oh man, somebody is really having fun here. So I blew it out of the water with a big deal to an insurance company and then left right after. Uh, but it was a chance for me to see how agencies operate in the ecosystem. And, but that ultimately led for me joining a startup. And I said, I really want to be at a venture-backed startup who's growing and taking off. And, uh, and then the question was, who, who would hire you know, somebody with an education background that barely had any sales background? Well, uh, you know, an early-stage startup that has less than 20 people is sometimes pretty desperate for who's going to come and sell their product. And that's, that's where I got my start in tech. Nice, nice. So I'm assuming this is where it kind of ties into your next story, uh, you know, which is kind of the focus of this. You know, how did you go? Tell us about that experience of being part of that process, you know, zero to $100 million in ARR with those three different companies. Maybe I'm assuming those were, that was one of them. Yeah. So okay. uh, what had happened was I'd said, hey, I want to get involved in a true venture-backed technology company. And, and that's what I kind of started to put out to the world. And, and it was actually my, my now wife, it was her idea. I had just moved in and I, you know, with her in, in San Francisco and trying to figure out kind of where the career was going to go and if I could ever get my act together and, and get married and whatnot. And so I was in this really kind of low point and I just, I stepped back and I evaluated my skill set and I said, okay, um, let me reframe this because one of the things that I have that most uh, people joining a tech company at a junior level don't have is 10 years of external relations experience. I mentioned being at the Boys and Girls Club. I mentioned being a teacher. And so having nearly 10 years of experience in that space, you know, where my responsibilities were like talking to the CEO at Allstate, you know, like tell me another 22-year-old enterprise sales rep who's, who has that job. Uh, and so I brought a lot of that with me. And uh, once I changed my cover letter, I got three interviews. One was QuantCast, another was AdRoll, and then an ad server that doesn't exist anymore. And I was lucky enough to pick AdRoll uh, or they picked me kind of at the right time. So I enjoy, I joined at like employee 12 or 13 and they were just building out the sales team. And I came home after the first day of work, so excited. I, I told you know my girlfriend at the time, is now my wife, I said, like, Jenny, this is amazing. I'm learning so much. They're doing this the thing called retargeting, where we show ads to people after they leave their website. The conversions are enormous. I, you know, I, I'm going to learn how to sell right, and it's going to be so great. And then about a month later, 
Google released the same product. Yeah. Google remarketing came out and yeah. I was like, I can't make rent. And, and she said, well, why don't you ride the ride for six months? I'll pay rent if you're going to learn from this. And that was a fork in the road that I always be grateful for. And so what happened was, you know, Google educates the market, tells people what retargeting looks like, and ad roll starts to take off. And my thousand dollar deals go to ten thousand, and ten thousand goes to one hundred thousand, and and we're able to start going up market and working with bigger and bigger clients. And uh, the year was probably. 2011 or 2012, we made the Inc. 5000 list and we were, we thought we'd be somewhere on the list. We were in the first top 10. I think we were ranked the, the number seven fastest growing company in the country. And when we opened up the magazine copy, you see the whole list of everybody else. And of the top like 20 companies that year, half of them were our clients. And that wow. was like, oh my God, not only are we onto something, we're growing phenomenally. We were the only company on Google's stack that was growing uh, from Q4 to Q1 in advertising. After December, things drop off, right? Most of, especially in North America, all those ads are driven around Christmas. And so everybody else was dropping off. We were the only place where you'd have a bigger January. And you know, unbeknownst to me, a lot of that was we had learned how to sell this product not only to the consumer websites, but also to B two B companies like Salesforce, like uh, and their agencies. So I, I had worked with Tipco Software. My colleague is the one that closed Salesforce, but we got to see how to break in to do retargeting. So I literally sold the first retargeting campaign to a B two B software company to get people to come back to their website and their buy flows, and that's where you know, the enterprise software business starts to look more and more like the consumer experience. We've got the GUI interfaces. We've got people going to the web forms, downloading the content and deciding they want to buy the tool, whether it's, you know, Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever tool it is, uh, right. learning about, you know, how SaaS gets sticky. And so um, AdRoll's growth was, uh, I don't know, maybe 10000 We were doing maybe $10,000 a month when I joined. And the day I left, we did $758,000 in one day. And so I got to see what in one day. And so I got to see, (laughs) I got to see the rocket ship. And so that was probably a, you know, half a million to, you know, $300 million ride. I don't know what their last publicly released figure was. I left in the end of the year. Right. So like I said, Uh, how how long was that that, that timeframe? That was about, that was about five years. It was just under five years. So to see a company take off that much in the middle of there, uh, I got to build a $58 million sales team and, at one point, all eight out of the 10 leaders who were running mid-market teams of $16 million or more uh, had all come from my group. And I realized that what I was passionate about was leadership development. And that that had never changed from my time working education and, and working with uh, with the schools. And so, <clears throat> so Adroll is really, you know, kind of the place I had to think. It's not a brand that many people know about anymore. And, you know, the company never had a big, IPO, it never had a big, you know, uh, heyday acquisition, but, um, but I got to Z zero to 300 million there and I got to make 250 friends and, uh, and, and I had an amazing experience, right? So, so that really led me to realize that the thing that I love the most is helping, uh, helping leaders really kind of, uh, step into their next role, whether it's a manager becoming a director of sales or a director becoming a VP, um, those types of clients I work with all the time in my coaching practice. And then uh, working more with founders at early stage companies, the founders that I get a chance to work with are the ones who are also trying to figure out, hey, how do I appropriately manage sales so that I can get enough traction to go 
raise some money or find the right um, value-added uh, finance partner. Mm-hmm. Cool. So then, you know, you're there for five years, you know, see that kind of rocket ship. You asked for something and you got exactly what you asked for at that point. And I'm sure at that point... Careful you, what you wish for. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure that that's that point of time where you're about to quit and couldn't pay rent, I think, you know, you realize that that girl of your your dreams was, uh, was, was a keeper at that point. What was the next company after that one that you, uh, you know, what were the other two well, companies that you experienced the same thing? I knew that I wasn't diversified because all of my options and all of my money and everything was coming from one job. And I thought, gosh, it wouldn't it be great if there's a way to diversify, but I wasn't smart enough to go out and do that on my own. Right. Like some people would invest in the market. Uh, now we're seeing more and more sales leaders because, you know, sales is a job where you can make enough to be a qualified investor in the U.S. So we're right. seeing more and more sales leaders spin up funds. You know, I, I just saw another one last a couple of weeks ago that I'm really excited about sales syndicates because I think founders will get a lot of value uh, from being able to get a sales leader as an investor, uh, especially when it's an early check. You know, that's I think that's some of the smartest money you can have. But again, I'm biased because I'm in the sector and I do some investing. But um, but so so what happened was uh, I got a call from uh, a guy who was running a small software company that said, hey, I know you're running a sales team at AdRoll. They had been an AdRoll client. And so that's what kind of opened the door because they reached out and, and we were using their software. And so he reached out to the product manager and said, hey, who's running your sales team? And that person came to me and said, hey, will you talk to this guy? His name's Clark. He's got some questions about uh, how to build a sales team. And so I get on the phone with him and I just I talk, talk him through it. And what unbeknownst to him, I, I had all this teaching experience, right? So it wasn't just, oh, you need to do these 10 things, you know, the listicle advice blogs that we all read. It was, okay, so where are you at right now? All right, here, what is the next step? What is your step after that? Let's orchestrate it. Let's plan it out. And then he called me back a week later. We did another session. I didn't know I was executive coaching. I had no idea what that was called. But um, but I was really, I was teaching him how to go to market. And by the third call, he realized he had a, a bad hire as his director of sales and, and he needed to figure out um, if she was the right person, how to remove her if she wasn't. And I, sure enough, you know, on my team had been growing so fast, I learned a lot about hiring and firing. And so I was happy to share that. And then after that, it was, okay, now how do I go as founder with no head of sales? How do I lean into the business and start closing enterprise accounts? And so I helped him do that. And, um, you know, here's this company with 10 employees that was never going to amount to anything. Uh, he asked me to come on as an advisor and he said, you know, hey, I, I can't pay you much, but I'll give you some shares. and I'll give you a little cash. And I was like, yeah, happy to do it. My boss was supportive. So I was basically working two jobs at that point. I was coming in early in the morning. And so from seven to nine Pacific, I was, you know, coaching this nascent, you know, kind of early team at this software for designers. And then I was starting my job at nine and doing my one-on-ones and doing my regular sales management job and looked up two years later. And the company I'd been working with is called Envision App. And they're, you know, grow to 2000 employees and working with 99 of Fortune 100 companies at the time. Now they're working with all the Fortune 500. Uh, And so I really got a chance to do two things at once, you know? And so I think they've, they're the second in the story of zero to a hundred million. And I'm sure because I think that number is is public. And the third is one that um, I can tell you a little bit about, but I can't give you the name of because I was there as an sure. executive coach to the COO. And the COO had come to me when they 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 had a stumbling block as uh, you know as as companies grow they often try to figure out are they being run and led by the best people. And this was a company in, in logistical software 
who brought me in when they needed to make a sales leadership change. And so it's a little misleading to say zero, 100 million, three times because I came in at about 50 and stayed to about 175. So I feel like that's an error that you'll forgive me on to, you mm-hmm. know, to, to make it a simple bio. But, um, but what had happened was that the question is, if I got a sales leader who grew us to 50 million, but I need somebody else from 50 to 100 or 200, how do I go find that person? So I really, I worked with the leadership team there, the, the COO and, and co-founder to, to define what he was looking for, how to go source the right candidates, how to identify uh, somebody who could grow a team that was you know, their, their SMB team was, was hundreds, you know, at that point, you don't usually see that, you know, with, with that size company having such a big sales team. And so it was really structuring that out and then working with the rest of the leaders. Cause you, what you don't want to do is have all your managers and directors leave because your VP did, um, right. and, and, and leave in that conflict. And so my job there was to help work with, uh, you know, mid-market sales leader to grow into the director of mid-market, uh, the same as for other segments as well. And so that is was probably one of the more fun engagements I did as an executive coach because I had a chance to see some of the bigger stage problems that previously I had seen as an operator to be able to see that as a coach and step aside, you know, because part of being a coach is not having a dog in the in the fight. And being able right. to say, what's the right thing for you? What do you know is true because you know your business? Let's go execute that together. Let's go help you get the resources you need or the team you need. Um, and so that was a really, really fun one too. So I want to kind of go dig deeper into that leadership side. So, you know, yeah. with your coaching uh, program, you focus on, you know, high potential revenue leaders and then obviously opportunities of what the business is. How do you assess whether the, the company is a right fit or good fit for to be able to hit that projection? And, you know, when you come in and, and actually get the results? Well, the first is ethics. I want to make sure that I'm working with clients that, that, that have an ethical background and have, you know, a shared, you know, value system. Uh, one of the ways I did that when I was recruiting salespeople to work on my team is in the interview, I asked my favorite sales interview question, tell me about a time you gave a client bad news. And in that story, you can find out if this is a used car salesman who's trying to lie to you, or if it's somebody who legitimately cares about serving their clients well. And so I won't take on a founder client who's not in it to serve his or her customers well. Uh, if they're in it for a quick experiment, um, those companies never work out. They're backed by some of the best investors in the world, by the way. I've seen it, uh, the no-name company, and I've seen it with the fastest growing Y Combinator exit, yada, yada, yada. Um, I've seen both of those companies start with somebody who goes, I'm just going to try to screw some customers into buying this thing. You know, and that that doesn't feel good. I'm not going to ever work with somebody like that again. I'm going to try my best to stay out of that. Um, and so when you start to look at the way those companies grow in at the corporate level, you know, I want to make sure that, that there's this shared philosophy of we're out here because we really want to make an impact, really want to make a dent in the world. And when that's true, then the next question is, we're growing so fast, you know, we took our best rep and made them a manager. And then we lost a bunch of revenue because that person's not selling anymore. Now they're doing the management tasks. And, and that manager maybe grows up into a director or a VP, whatever the situation is. And so what I do is I, I come to, you know, essentially as an extension of that team to give the sales leader an outside sounding board, mm-hmm. an ability to work with somebody on their own career development because they're not getting their one-on-ones anymore with their boss. 
They're getting board meeting prep meetings. They're getting, oh my God, what are we going to do meetings? They're getting spreadsheets to go over with the rest of their, their leaders and peers. And they're not getting the, what do you want from your career? How do you make that happen here? What is your dream for this team? Um, you know, one, one challenge that comes up quite frequently that honestly, I wish this would come up more is, is the identifying somebody in the succession plan. If I get promoted to VP, I'm going to need another, you know, manager on my mid-market team. How do I make sure she's, she's ready? You know, and so I work with them to design custom training plans. Okay. Well, here's a rep who needs to maybe move into hiring. Maybe they move into interviewing. So then they have that skill by the time they become a manager. And that's the thing that, you know, as companies we scale, we think, okay, so if this works, I'm going to need X server capacity. Or when this works, I'm going to need to make sure that I've got these partners ready to go. And so we go and kind of sell before we're ready on partnership, on engineering, on product. But in sales, we're often playing catch up. We don't hire before we're ready on sales. And so I really, I work with my clients to make sure they've got the capacity to keep thinking big, even on the sales side, where you might feel like you're paying catch up. How do I get enough reps? How do I get enough revenue? But really it's about how do I develop my people in a way that they'll have the capacity to lead when the time is they're called on. It makes sense. Uh, you know, when you're working and deciding who you want to work with, what would you say is an ideal founder profile or executive you like to work with and coach? And what would you say are the key differentiators of the best performers um, from the rest? Is there some kind of key traits or some things you notice on, on the ones who do better than the others? Well, the the trait is the traits are interesting because you know everybody will say you got to find a smart founder, you got to find a brilliant team, uh, look for teams that have unfair advantage. Okay, so, so let's assume all those check boxes are there. Then the next question is, is, are they coachable? Because many founders that are great are actually not very coachable. Now, I'm not saying coachable means you need to listen to what I say and then go do it. That, I think a lot of investors would, would actually think that I need them to be able to do what they're told. That's not the way I'm going to join an advisory board for you. That's not the way that I'm going to be a coach for you. Part of my you know, coaching philosophy is uh, very um, supportive, yet uh, giving clients the space to to do what they want to do, take their path of self determination. That's a it's an important trait, and so I look for founders. And when I'm evaluating, you know, people to work with, it, it's is this founder somebody who actually wants to go win? You know, and maybe they're scared of it. That's fine. We've all been scared of success, but they want to go win because they believe in a higher, you know, higher calling. You know, the industry needs this. You know, um, one one example is somebody who who has a product that helps small businesses save about half a million dollars a year in a in a you know an expense that that most don't know they have. Well, let me help them. You know, go reach a bigger audience. Let me help them build a sales team and make sure they hire and groom the right talent. Let me make sure that they're going, when they go up market, that they're ready to do a deal with a big partner, right? Like a Fortune 5 financial partner that they did a deal with. You know, um, let me go make sure that that founder is, is able to, to, you know, stand square and go do that deal rather than, uh, you know, have their breath held not knowing what their value is. Um, those are all things that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, but that, you know, kind of a convoluted answer to what you said, like trait wise, it's really somebody who 
who feels like their solution is going to be, you know, going to fit in this bigger story about moving, you know, moving technology forward, you know? So it sounds more, it's about like, they have that belief in themselves and what they're selling and, and more that they're actually adding real yeah. value to, to absolutely the end user. Yeah. You know, and okay. building something people need, right? You know, and yeah. I don't think that, you know, I think YC is wrong when they say just make something people want and everything else falls into place. That's not the way software is sold, by the way. Mm-hmm. But if you start with, I know that this is why this is needed. Great. You know, I talked to somebody the other day, fascinating business, fascinating opportunity, really interesting guy, somebody I cannot wait to get a beer with, but fell into the industry, fell into the product, fell into the team, and now raising a, a, a monster round. And uh, he's, you know, he's very far from his user in that it's not, not a space. It'd be like if I got into like, I don't know, knitting software. Like, I don't know anything <laughs> about crochet quilting or knitting. Like, I like to do projects, but that's not my world. If I told you I was going to do the next amazing quilting apps, you know, if I was going, if I was going to be the next craftsy, which is a really interesting business. Well, if I tell you I'm doing that and I have nothing to do with that space, you should be suspicious. This is the same type of thing. Right. There's different type of people, right? They just chase opportunity. They chase the money and they'll find the right people around them to, to, to yeah. find and, and you know, I've, yeah. you're, when the company takes off and it's doing really well and you get listed as the best place to work or you get listed as an Inc. magazine, fastest growing company, or you get on the Forbes, you know, cloud 100 list or, or those types of things. Well, who shows up? Well, it's those IPO hunters who show up and they're, uh, leadership version of the same founder problem that I just described. They're only there because they think it's going to be a good party. Uh, and, and I would rather somebody who comes because they know they can make it a better party. Right. You know, and that that's apparent when somebody shows up to your house, you can tell by the booze they're contributing to the mini bar, uh, on, on what, on, on the way they think of themselves, you know, Hey, I brought this wine that I can't wait to have with you because this is my favorite vintage or favorite place or whatever. Uh, doesn't matter. Even if it's $10, like does not matter. Uh, that person I will always take over somebody who shows up and it's clear they just, they, they grabbed something on the corner store. It was the closest thing they could find. It was on sale, whatever. And they showed up and they're like, Oh wow, you guys, you guys have this over. Yeah. Don't open my thing. Let's open that nice thing of yours, you know, uh, Mm. or, or the, the, the something that somebody else brought in. It's like, no, come, come to bring part of the party with you and we'll be, and we'll be fine. (laughs) Love it. Share the joy, man. Uh, can you, so, you find the right finder, you found the right founder, the executive to work with, you found the right company that you think you can genuinely help and you feel they're making an impact and, and helping their end user. Now you come in there, can you share what is your general playbook, you know, growth playbook look like? What's the most frequent improvements required from, you know, the wide range of clients you work with and companies and how do you work with them to achieve that? You know, the development goals, your leadership goals and yeah. ultimately growth, right? Well, I'll give you two. Uh, one, at the kind of seed stage founder level, like let's say, let's call that series A and below. And then I'll give you another example of what to do when you're an Airbnb or a Lyft and you're post unicorn. Uh, And then hopefully you can think about the spectrum between there is some ways to do maybe both or a mix. So in the early stage, the, the biggest problem that I see is somebody who's selling and mind you, my experience is mostly B2B software, a lot of SaaS. Yeah. Most founders in this space don't know uh, or don't realize what they already know about their customer buying process. 
And so if you're a founder listening to this today and you're thinking, oh man, what does he mean? Well, we'll take out, take out a piece of paper and draw out your sales cycle. Okay, so in the sales cycle, the first step is we get a cold call. Maybe it's an introduction because my investor has introduced me to somebody in procurement at IBM. Okay, so I write down introduction as step one. Step two, after the introduction, I'm maybe going to do a demo. Maybe I want to show them the software. Maybe I'm going to ask them some questions or customize that demo. And there's maybe five or six steps in that process. Now, the founder who's learning about B2B sales has also learned from books like The Challenger Sale, that there's around six or seven decision makers on the other side of that deal in enterprise software, right? So identify those people too. But here's what most people are missing. Most people aren't sitting and diagramming that same process for the buyer. So put your buyer hat on. And and what is step one? I got introduced to this person. I don't know what the offer is. Step two is make sure that offer is real. Go around and figure out if we truly have the problem that the software is solving. So I might interview department heads. I might bring it up at the management meeting. I might tell my employees about this thing that I heard about if I'm a senior leader and I'm bringing in a tool that I'm not the user of, right? Like how many SVPs of sales are truly Salesforce users? They're report readers, but they're, they're, they're not adding stuff into Salesforce. So they're not gonna be the people who like buy Outreach or buy Scratchpad or buy these other tools that make a sales rep's life easier. They're not going to be the user of that. They may buy those things, but they're not the user of that, right? And so think about that, right? So if you're selling into this top dog and that person brings it down to their team, what does that conversation look like? So, so at the early stages, you have to diagram what the buying process looks like so that you can identify if your sales process is in lockstep with what your buyer is doing. Because a lot of times what will happen is, you know, I'll meet people who get stuck in a deal and they'll call up and they'll say, I can't figure out why this deal is stuck. And we'll talk about it for a little while and they'll realize that what's happening is on the other side of that deal, someone is still walking around trying to get an internal buy-in. And we never gave them the tools to be successful at that. You know, we sent them a proposal, but we never said, hey, here's how we can customize this proposal. So can you ask this team or that team, you know, I used to sell hotel software and we would, we get so detailed to say, can you just, before our next meeting, will you ask the director of housekeeping, how many people will use this app on her, on mm. her team? Right. Well, now we can customize that proposal around real data that actually drives change for the client, right? Like they want that. And, and the kicker that just, it just makes me smile every time it comes up is oftentimes the best founders are the ones that came out of middle and big businesses, so, you know, I, I worked with somebody who is the head of engineering for one of the Microsoft teams. Um, okay. I won't tell you which one, but, but he's super, super founder. He was amazing, but he had been a buyer of his own tool. Then he leaves Microsoft. He goes and starts this new company. And we spent a lot of time turning around. I said, when you were back in your last job, draw out the process of the last five things you bought. Now let's build a sales process that looks the same because you're selling to your old self. So who yeah. better to know about that than you? You know whether or not you got by it and you know whether or not your boss would give you a million dollars or not. You know, um, another stat around this that most founders don't believe and I always share is I had I'd done a, a, a little bit of coaching and work with a founding team that previously was was at salesforce.com. And, uh, and she was a director and said, you know, as a director at Salesforce in this particular division that she was in, she had autonomy to spend $300,000 on any tool that was already budgeted. Great. Hmm. Check that box. I said, okay, well, what about your boss? Oh, well, well, he could spend one and a half to three million as long as it was in the budget. And, but the question that had come up for the founder was, Hey, how do I price my tool? 
since you're selling it back to your old self, how much sure. could you have bought it for? And, you know, and that's where the light bulb goes on. And so any founder listening to this, if you haven't diagrammed that buying process yet, even if you'd worked in that business or not, it doesn't matter. But if you diagram that buying process, you're going to see opportunities to change your sales process around what your customer actually wants. Hmm. Uh, what was the second one? You know, so if you're working with the Airbnbs, the Zooms, the Asanas, and you work with those some of those big players, what do you provide those kind of leaders? Yeah, so so one of the challenges that happens for a leader when their team gets bigger, especially in, in sales, where you get promoted because you're good at sales, it's very tempting to just turn around and close the deals behind you. So you've got a sales rep who's struggling. Well, add me to the call and I'll go close this deal for you. And that's a little bit of a, you know, kind of an old school sales process of, oh, I've got to bring my boss in. You know, we used to say, you know, bring the gray hair in the sport coat, uh, not meaning wear a sport coat, meaning bring Mike. He's in the corner office and he's going to sure. come with you. That's the way I came up. Uh, and by the way, Mike Plazic, who's not listening, was an amazing mentor. And sure enough, gray hair, sport coat. He kept an extra sport coat in his office for this purpose, for when I got stuck, he'd show up uh, and he was great. You know, but you know, the, the brown loafers, the sport coat, the, the old white guy with the white hair doesn't, doesn't actually get it done as much anymore as you'd like, uh, mm. or, or not like, depending on how you think about it. And so what I work with on, with emerging leaders is how to be the person who enables your team to do an amazing job. And most leaders, I'm the first coach they've ever used, uh, to have an outside executive coach. Most of, most of my clients, and when I'm working with them, the biggest takeaway is actually because they've been in an environment working with a coach who is neutral and wants them to be successful, but doesn't, doesn't actually have investment in, in what path they choose to be successful. Those are the clients who realize that that is the secret weapon to making an awesome sales team. It's self-determination. It's one of the core principles of social work. So I actually got a master's degree in social work before I ever got into tech. And uh, one of the core principles of self-determination, a client should be able to choose their destiny as opposed to being told what to do. Think about the worst teachers you've had. They're the people who told you what to do. The best teachers you had were probably the teachers who said, I don't know, where do you want to go to college? Mm. What do you want to study? What are you passionate about? I saw the way you leaned into this biology project. Maybe right. I should tell you some more about some of the science classes that are available at the next level, wherever that is, if that's going to high school or going to college or, or going to grad school, whatever. And those yeah. are the teachers that we love. Well, the same thing is true in the workplace. So we have to, as leaders, lean into how to make our teams great. And so that's a, a, that's a cheat code. Uh, if, if you have never had a coach before, get a coach that so you can experience that and you'll become the type of leader who coaches their team as opposed to the type of leader who tells their team what to do. I, I love that thought. You know, I think as, as founders, people think that as, you know, with their team come to them with problems that we need to be the ones giving them the solutions. And a lot of times that's our first instinct, right? Is to give them the answer and the solution. But I think the truth yeah. is sometimes, even though you might have the answer, you know, I, I, I always have to stop myself as well as like, you know, what, what do you think is the right answer? Let them come with a solution. Sometimes it's better and sometimes not. Even if it's, you know, you can guide them to, you know, even though, you know, this is the answer is like, okay, well, you said this, but let's guide to why you're yeah. thinking and then help them think to, you know, uh, be able to problem solve yeah. a little better, right? So I think that's part uh, of it. That's great. You know, another quick cheat code about exactly what you described is when I'm working with a client, oftentimes I'll change the question instead of what should we do or what will you do? I say, what could we do? Mm. Let's real quick, let's take a minute, get a piece of paper and let's write down five things we could do. 
And we write them down together. And so they get stuck. Sure enough, they say, well, what did you do when you were at this company or that company or when you worked at these other companies? What are they doing? I'm happy to offer that stuff. But that can't be the only thing that we base the conversation on. Because, you know, if if you're growing a new business, you don't want to do it the Airbnb way. You want to do it your way. You don't want to do it the way that, you know, repeat the same challenges that are on the management team at Lyft. You want to do it your way. You know, and so, so to be able to do that, let's, let's change the question to what could we do? Let's make a list of five or six things. And then ask the question, is the right answer already on this list? If no, let's put five more things on there from the brainstorm. If yes, okay, which of these two things are we going to test and try? And they might be things out of my playbook, but they also might be things out of yours. They might be things that, that you've seen work or you have a hunch works because you know your leaders better than me. You know your team better than me and you know your market better than me. Any salesperson who comes in as a counselor, advisor, or a coach who says it has to be this way, that's somebody who, you know, honestly, they're, they're not as close to the business as you and the founder are. They're just right. not, you know, they may be an important investor from the biggest deal firm, but they don't know the market the way you do. Otherwise, they, you know, they would have built the company themselves instead of being in the investor seat. That, that's a very good point. I love that question. What What could we do? Yeah, it's a good one to take away. Yeah. From. It's could <laughs> so is the is could is the word. What could you do? Uh, yeah. And then you have a, a whole list of interesting brainstorm things because you're not on the hook. Once you right. say it out loud, you're not on the hook to do it. It's mm. one of the things you could do. Well, and then we exactly. decide what we're going to do. Exactly. I love talking about this stuff. By the way, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I enjoy it. I mean, that's all the stuff, right? It sounds so simple, high level, being a leader, but it's those little things that, you know, pay attention to and it makes the biggest difference. Yeah. Um, so yeah. switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I'd love to hear more about, you know, Churro Media and you've got some, an upcoming film, right? Outs- uh, up, upcoming film called Outside the Valley. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm glad yeah. you asked. So um, yeah. for my, my leadership path has been, hey, how do I help as many people as possible? And in 2017, that led me to join the team at 500 Startups. I was actually on the investment team for batch, I think it was batch 25 and 26. Um, and, and I had a great time working with those founders. But one of the things that 500 Startups does globally that a lot of people don't realize in the States or, or North America is they have teams all over the world. Right. And so they asked me to go do a sales talk in Kobe, Japan. And I, I went and it was amazing. And then uh, the person who was running that conference, his name was Max. He said, hey, can you meet me in Uruguay and do the same talk? And so I changed my Duolingo over to Spanish and hablo mm-hmm. poquito all, all the way down there. And then I, you know, and then sure enough, uh, met another batch of amazing founders and uh, that were in places where they're not getting the support to, uh, that, that we see more commonly uh, in, in the Bay Area and other places that are, that are more developed startup ecosystems. That led to Mexico City. Uh, and actually, the fund who brought me to Mexico City, I ended up investing in uh, because I believe in the, the, the Latin American opportunity. There's, there's a $6 trillion, econo- $6 trillion economy in Latin America. And most U.S. Yeah. investors ignore it because they, they, use, they use their prejudice to overlook Mexico as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entire country. But that, it, you know, 600,000 people, they're going to need Ubers too, right? So if you look right. at the IPOs of a company like Uber, you go, okay, well, how big of a Latin America is, is there on this, you know, Uber's S1? Like, well, okay, that'll answer your question about whether or not somebody's got an app and, and a new, you know, new economy is adding credit cards. And so you can, I probably can hear from these stories that I start to fall in love with all these places around the world, even though I'm in kind of a gringo that doesn't speak any other languages. But I realized that my, my, speaking sales was enough to get me to Istanbul and, and get me to Buenos Aires and all these other places. 
And so about halfway through this trip that went to 20 countries and uh, oh, probably fifth, probably 25 startup accelerators at this point, um, I, I reconnected with a college friend who's a filmmaker who's got seven movies on Netflix. And, and I'm telling him what I'm up to. And he's like, man, the founders that you were working with must have amazing personal stories that, of how they're overcoming you know, the challenges in their market. And so we decided to do a film about this. So Outside the Valley, if you go to outsidethevalley.tv, you'll see the trailer and you see what we're working on. And we went to New Zealand. We went to Portugal. We went to Uruguay, uh, back to Uruguay, and then um, and Mexico City. And then we got shut down by COVID. But we we're still able to make what I think is a really cool film. Uh, and towards the end, we did a couple of Zoom check-ins with our investor friends to see if we'd done it right and done justice to the story. And we had people like Brad Feld and Mark Cuban, you know, dialing in to give us uh, some kind of sage advice as founders about, you know, really what the opportunity is internationally. And... Um, and for the, the companies that are, that are really, that are going to survive this crisis and do even better because of it. Mm, super cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, now with, you know, obviously with COVID, a lot of more entrepreneurs being, you know, all over the place, you know, traveling or living where they choose, um, any favorite places you've, you've visited and recommend to other entrepreneurs, maybe set up their next hub and why? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things actually, uh, you might be able to get to it on, I know it's on Outside the Valley's YouTube channel, but there's also, we have Churro.tv. Um, and so you can check out Churro TV and you might be able to get to this. There's an interview with a really interesting founder uh, in Portugal. And he speaks about traveling around, like he was from San Francisco or he lived in San Francisco. Uh, he's, he spoke Portuguese. Uh, I think he's Brazilian um, by upbringing, but has, you know, has this very multicultural lens. And so he went to check out London to see if that's where he should run his startup. And he decided not to run it in London. He he thought about going back to Brazil. He thought about staying in San Francisco, but the talent in San Francisco, is just very hard to get the right engineers. There are great engineers there. It's very hard to get the right ones. And right. so he ended up uh, building his game studio in, in Lisbon. Uh, and was it, we found a perfect intersection and, you know, being Brazilian and speaking Portuguese, he, you know, it gives him shortcut, uh, to, to participate in other things that are in the community. Although you could probably run a company in Lisbon without speaking Portuguese, um, probably pretty efficiently. It's not as scary as some sure. of the other markets would be to not speak the language. Um, but that, that is a favorite place because they have an interesting intersection, uh, between, uh, diversity um, the ability to think big enough. Um, you know, a lot of these startup ecosystems and emerging markets, uh, the founders aren't thinking huge. Um, but, uh, but that's not a challenge that I see, you know, in some, in some of the European markets, they, they are caught up to, okay, we can do something really, really big. Um, you know, another one, actually speaking of Europe, I met with a team from La French Tech in Paris and, uh, one thing I learned there is that they, they do this really cool program where they give every founder in their program, they give them three wishes. Uh, they call it the genie grant. Are you familiar with this? No. It's so, so it's, so basically you've got three wishes of the government to help you with your startup. If you're one of okay. their top excelling startups, so they've got a national list of what their best startups are and you make the, the, the sub list is 80 and then there's a smaller list of maybe, I don't know, about 20, 15 or 20 startups. And if you're one of these kind of smaller elite startups that gets, gets backed by the government, you get these three wishes. And so one team used that to go on an official government delegation to China. Another team used that to meet with the Minister of Finance to get approved for their, their blockchain technology that was technically illegal by French law. They went and got a waiver 
And the wow. condition was just, hey, you know, but but here's a startup able to meet, you know, I mean, how many startups in the US can meet with the Treasury Secretary? I'm not sure, you know, <laughs> Canadian startups, I'm not sure about even how your government's structured, but like, that's a pretty big ask, regardless of how big the government is, right? Definitely. Um, and, and so to be able to have that kind of access, because you're a startup, like, I would say that's something that, I'll, you know, it could be replicated in many environments for startup ecosystems that just mm. isn't yet. And, and they take the, take a page from, from the French tech. Um, you know, one of the interesting trends that's happening in Southeast Asia right now is mm. um, there's so many countries there. I think there's 21 in ASEAN, uh, but, but I don't, I don't know for sure, but I'm still learning about the space, but um, Southeast Asian entrepreneurs are now thinking about how to combine their entire ecosystem. And, and not start a company that serves just Indonesia or just Thailand or, right. or, or, or just Cambodia. Instead, how do we go and think about ourselves as, as serving this larger ecosystem, which is similar to the question about Latin America. Latin America is 6 trillion. Um, I don't know what that number is in Southeast Asia, but it's, but it's really effing big. And if you say, hey, treat us as this big number, uh, then all of a sudden we can make different decisions about it because... Then the U.S. is not the biggest uh, software consumer market in the world. Uh, turns exactly. out, you know, especially as we consumer software evolves, uh, thanks to our smartphones. Well, there's a lot of other bigger markets to serve, and and no longer is it about uh, who's entitled uh, by speaking English or who can build an app that uh, can get into the app exchange or or whatever that that opens up the North American market. Uh, mm. And by that, I mean U.S. and Canada, because we've got we've already talked about the Mexico challenges. Um, and so uh, that I think is really cool and interesting. So you asked me where my favorite place is. That's not a fair question, uh, but it usually circulates around the food. So Mexico is probably up there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you want to talk, you want to talk, uh, you know, tacos de calle. We're talking about like my amazing food experiences in Mexico. If you want to nice. talk about uh, ripping asados, you're talking about my trips to Argentina and Uruguay, where I've had some of the best meat in the world. You want to talk about like refined beef cuisine. We're talking about Kobe, Japan uh, and, and doing some things that, that I, I couldn't afford to put on my plate if I was back in the U S. Um, nice. And then of course, everything everybody knows about Europe is, is, is always going to be there. You know, um, nice. I, I'd say one of my more memorable meals from a startup campus is in Italy. There's a Marco Trombetti, uh, who's a really interesting entrepreneur. He actually started a translated service years ago, had an exit and now has been giving back to his ecosystem. Well, his book is in like nine languages. So you get the whole box set and your job is to give the other ones away so everybody can read the book in their mother tongue. How brilliant is mm -hmm. that? Uh, I won't dig story. through and show you this on the shelf, but but it's there, I promise you. Uh, I'm, I haven't given all mine away yet, so I need to, to make more progress. But um, he has a Pi Campus, P-I Campus, like the number Pi. Okay. And, and at Pi Campus, they have five houses and five software companies in each house. And he's rebuilt this like Roman, uh, you know, uh, Roman campus, right? It's so cool. And so his, his co-founder and partner actually took me to lunch nearby at a, a restaurant called El Fungi, which looks like a giant mushroom because it's in a water tower you know, that's over the city. So we go, you know, high up in this water tower and, and I tell him I, I saw some pasta on TV and he's like, we don't make that type of pasta here, but there's one place I'll take you to and they'll, they'll hook it up. And what they do is they take a giant cheese wheel, light it on fire, scrape all the melting cheese and a big Parmesan or pepperoncino wheel, and then throw pasta in it, toss it and then put it on your plate right there by the table side. It was delicious. 
I think wow, they only do imagine. it for the tourists, but it yeah, was yeah. so delicious. You know? Yeah, it's funny how the food, uh, you always remember a place just because of that food, eh? Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I yeah. definitely agree. You know, probably Portugal is definitely on my top five list, and would recommend it to a lot of entrepreneurs to check out as well if you if you're looking to you build know, something. Yeah, and and startup Lisboa actually, if you go to their website, you can easily navigate to. Um, they're doing workshops on how to start your company in Portugal right now, which I think is just genius. The website yeah. in some you know there there's some fine print that's in Portuguese, which. That part, I hope that they evolve because if they're trying to attract international startups, uh, English is a language for that most of the time. But uh, but they're they're running a really interesting program to help teach people what they need to do to be a Portuguese startup, uh, yeah. and and you can even do that program from abroad, which is which is genius. Yeah. They also have the the startup visas. I think are a little bit easier there if you're gonna you know looking to start up anywhere in Europe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So with, well, Estonia, those, you got the EVC. Yeah, anyway, uh, so there's that's a lot of opportunity right now around the world. So I'm glad you called that out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so without spoiling it too much for the audience around, you know, the TV show, you know, just quickly, uh, can you can you uh, share any of the, you know, what you stumbled upon when looking at those challenges that founders face, you know, outside yeah. of the Silicon Valley who live in the bubble that, you know, is a reality for others? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, the first spoiler is great founders are everywhere. Mm. Full stop. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's, there may be a corner of, there may be a corner on the finance market in North America. And by that, I mean, coastal US, you know, 85% of venture capital in the world is going to be doled out in San Francisco, New York, a little teeny bit of Boston, a little bit of teeny bit of Seattle. Um, right. Okay. So uh, you're telling me that you can't build an awesome, you know, you don't have awesome founders in Toronto. Well, I know that's not true. You've got awesome universities. You've got everything else exists there. You know, same thing, Mexico City, right? You've got interesting problems there. If you've got an interesting problem there, you've got an entrepreneur willing to solve it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the, in Mexico in particular, especially in like places like Mexico City, it's dense with entrepreneurs. So what do you do to change that game? You know, mm-hmm. get to a place where there's, there's uh, financial literacy and computer software literacy. And now all of a sudden that market looks very different. So the guy who's got an informal job, sell, you know, running the food shop or selling the honey, uh, you know, give his kid a laptop, right? And what can she mm-hmm. do, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, the, you know, sort of the spoilers from Uruguay is Uruguay has had a national policy for 12 years called Plants of All. Plants of all means every child in Uruguay has a laptop. Really? So think about that. That's 12 years, 12 years in, right? So roll mm. back the clock 12 years and think, okay, uh, what about a middle schooler 12 years ago who gets a laptop at school? For yeah. in middle school, I'm talking about seventh grade. I'm talking about 12-year-olds, right? 12-year-old has a laptop. They're 24 right now. They're 24 and they've had a laptop in their life for 12 years. So ideally that means they're probably coding, but if nothing else, they're just computer, the computer literacy of being able to, you know, do projects in Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, et cetera. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's, that's a more of a head start than I had. And so you go, okay, now what do we've got? We've got a whole batch of 24 year olds who've had these computers in their life a lot longer than, you know, it took the pandemic for my kids to get netbooks in their, you know, second and third grade, you know? So, so that's something that I think is really interesting is this idea that, you know, the great founders really are everywhere. Um, Problems are everywhere. Uh, we just, we also need to, you know, the other big challenge, like in, in emerging ecosystems, the biggest challenge actually recognizing what a global problem is versus a local problem. Um, I give you an example, right? So 
you know, if you start thinking about the problems that a big company has, they have very different problems than a small company. The companies still have problems. So then you could decide, you know, whose problem do you want to build for? You know, it's the same as like, you know, if I try to build a consumer app for the problems that I have in my lifestyle, and if I'm a, you know, 23-year-old Stanford bro in a fleece vest running around Palo Alto, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to do a uh, way to get my laundry picked up, a way to get a faster date, a way to swipe Mm. and have somebody show up at my house party, a way to get booze delivered. Now, those are all big companies and big markets, and there's a lot of money to be made there. Right. But that doesn't solve the problem of somebody who's, you know, in Latin America trying to get to work, right? Like they're, they're on the bus. They need other software. Uh, Mm -hmm. they need other tools. They need other things that are going to move their life forward. Uh, and likewise, if you go to the other end of the market and you think about, you know, one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs I, I ever worked with is a guy named, um, Adam Goldstein. And he was a client of mine back when I was in sales, but he was a CEO of Hipmunk. Hipmunk was an amazing travel app that was built by the team from Reddit. And mm. so uh, Adam was a CEO and I asked him like, why'd you, get in, why'd you get into this? And his dad was a travel agent. So he had mm. watched the travel agency problems. He's a smart kid, went to uh, MIT, I believe. And all of his, and his friends that were slightly older than him are the founders that started Reddit. So they were one of the first Y Combinator batch. And so like cool. you've got all these converging forces to go, okay, I'm going to fix this problem that my dad had. Okay, now you've got somebody who built an amazing travel app that was backed by the likes of Ashton Kusher and other big investors. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's a, that's a different way to think about problems. Can we get the rest of the world to think, okay, whose problem do I want to solve? Right? If you're a company mm-hmm. in New Zealand, you want to do business in North America, you go, okay, what are the problems that, are, that you know, a mid, mid-senior executive at a North American company that has, you know, 10,000 employees, what are the problems that he or she has? Let's mm-hmm. build for that. You build nice. for those problems and those are the deals that will come forward for you. Mm, makes perfect sense. Um, you know, m- moving to kind of the, the rapid fire questions just to kind of, you know, uh, yeah, please. Ra- wrap it up. Uh, what's one advice you wish you had known would tell your 25 year old self? That I would tell my 25 year old self or that somebody would have told me? What would you tell yourself based on what you know now today? Not to be scared of business. Don't be scared. Pe- people nice. are everywhere, you know, and, uh, and if you can, 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 you know, for me, I always loved people and solving problems and being there for somebody else, whether it was pulling over on the side of the road and helping somebody change a tire or helping somebody tie a canoe on top of their car. Um, those, those same workflows, we call them workflows in tech, but those same workflows exist everywhere else in the world and in every yeah. other industry. Mm, love it. What does success mean to you today, either personally or financially? Um, well, in the short haul, I want to get 10,000 founders or soon-to-be founders to see this film hmm. outside the valley.tv for anybody who wants to check the trailer and, and book a house party and, and show it to their friends. Um, <laughs> Definitely. But, uh, uh, you know, we're also getting a lot of in, uh, interesting investors who are showing, you know, doing showings for their portfolio. Um, I'll be here all week, by the way. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously. So that's one of those things. Is like I, you know, I, uh, I want to make sure that this this film touches touches lives. I'm also working on the second and third film now. So we've got a project going about uh, founders who are not just trying to change the world but save the world. Uh, and I can tell any you know interested executive producers that that want to join on and help us fund that uh, about that. So finding you know finding the right funding and the right partners to really make the next thing. You know, we've had tremendous interest from governments of places like New Zealand who are, 
you know, leading the way in coronavirus response, uh, but not uh, able to really get the word out completely that they are a huge exporter of software worldwide too. Uh, so mm-hmm. helping them get the word out about some of those things uh, is really important to me uh, because I believe it's it, it creates an equal opportunity and and it's not um, it's not a finite game it's not one pie it's not fighting over yeah. pizza slices like you did when you were a kid um, you know the pizza gets bigger and bigger the more tech that gets into it we've seen that uh, you know in each of the other big tech waves 2001 we saw that 2008 with what, what was called web 2.0 we saw that um, what's this next generation going to be called what it gets called actually doesn't matter the fact is we're going to double the size of all the markets that touch technology and uh, the number of people in the world is going to, to grow that you know that's another debate on if that's good or bad but that's your user base is growing mm. they'll be there when you build for them absolutely do you have a favorite book you can recommend to our audience to check out that's been uh, instrumental to your success well the, there's there's an advisor who's been a uh, mentor who's been instrumental in my success and that's Brad Feld um, mm. he's got a book about startup communities which is very good actually too and his book venture deals uh, is good for the rest of us who are going in with, you know, professional investors like yourself uh, to know what both sides of the table look like. You know, nice. if you're a founder and you're talking about raising money and you don't know what an LP is or what a two and 20 fund is, there's more you need to learn before you go into a negotiation because honestly, the incentives of the person on the other side of the table is tied up in, in just those two concepts alone will get you uh, another hundred miles down the deal to just understand where the incentives are. And there's, there's a whole nother list uh, after that, but, but that, that gets you started. And so venture deals really covers that story of, you know, venture companies, when to take venture, why to take venture, what it's like for the founder. Um, that book is one that there's a reason it's been translated and passed around the world because uh, it is so helpful. Cool. We'll add the, the link to our, to our show notes for that book. Uh, thank cool. you for this, Jay Ryan. Uh, where can our audience get in touch with you and learn more about what you're working on and your, your coaching program? Well, um, come by, you know, jryan.coach is, is the URL to learn about me and, and what I do for executive development for high potential sales leaders. And if you want to learn more about the media projects, there's a couple ways to do that. Outsidethevalley.tv is the URL for the, the movie. You can come and actually get on the mailing list to, to hear about where we're going next, what we're up to. Um, we're beta testing our own uh, streaming platform called True.tv, uh, which has a really fun, cool logo on it too. Um, and so we just came out with that. And so we've got a couple of shows on there that are ready to go now. Um, and then we are very soon to push shows uh, future powered by Uruguay, uh, a show called The First Round, which is interviewing entrepreneurs about how they got early backing um, and, and others of the like, which are, uh, as well as the trailer for the film is on there too. Super, super cool. Thank you so much. We'll add all those links to our show notes. People, make sure you check that out and uh, you know, say hi to Jay Ryan. Thank you. Right, thank, Appreciate thank it. You. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.